I'm glad you're here. Um, I hope you've got something to write with tonight, and you've brought something that you can write on and take notes with. Uh, we're going to start a church history and, uh, lesson, and uh, he just talked about that. We stand on the shoulders of these martyred giants. Any of y'all ever heard the name Baltasar Hubmeyer? Oh, come on. Baltasar Hubmeyer, German, Swiss. Baltasar Hubmeyer was one of the great, if not the greatest, of the Anabaptist preachers and theologians. Um, the average Anabaptist believer lived 18 months from the time they became an Anabaptist to the time they were put to death. There, were only, there was only one thing that the Catholics and the Protestants could agree on, and that is kill the Anabaptists. Uh, but they differed on how they would do it. The Catholics would burn them. The Protestants would cut their heads off. Now you say, well, you know, why does Balthazar Hubmeyer matter, you know, to us? You, do you understand why we baptize people by immersion like we did Sunday morning? You know why we do that? Well, number one, because it's New Testament. That's what we see in the New Testament. And that's what the Anabaptists believed and brought back. It had gone. I won't talk about any of that tonight, but we'll get there eventually, sometime maybe around December or January. Uh, at some point, we'll catch up to them. But let me tell you, Balthasar Hubmeyer went back to the New Testament, began to preach the New Testament. They caught him and his wife, and they took him, and they were going to burn him at the stake. And before they could get him to the stake to burn him, they rubbed gunpowder and poured gunpowder in his beard so that when they burned him at the stake, the fire would catch up and would explode his face. They forced his wife to stand there and watch that. Three days later, they said, you like to be baptized so much, we'll permanently baptize you. They put a stone around her neck, and they threw her off the bridge and into the river where she was never seen again. Um, we just take baptism so lightly. Oh, well, you know, I might get baptized someday. There were people who lived and died so that you could have a church where you could be immersed like they did in the New Testament. That's why we do history. Are y'all okay? Y'all all right? Don't, listen, light, it's, it's all right. Lighten up. It's, have a little bit of fun. We're going to have some fun through this. I'm going to take you way back tonight and uh, do a lot of introduction. But before we do that, let me just ask you once again to bow your heads and let's go to the Lord in prayer. How many of you here tonight You've got a very serious prayer request that's on your heart. You just lift your hand up. I'm looking. Nobody else is, needs to look. I'm looking. Well, let's pray for that. Whatever it is that you've got on your heart that's very serious. How many of you know somebody in your life, maybe in your family, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe at work, that desperately needs to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You slip your hand up. Well... That's all of us, isn't it, practically? Father, we come tonight, and before we turn to look at holy history, the history of your people, we come to acknowledge that you're God of all of time and all of eternity. Father, we thank you 
for this church and for the lighthouse that this church is. And the great desire of our heart is to see all of those that were just just represented by an upraised hand, Father, who need to know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that through the Spirit's work in this church, we'll see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For all of those who have deep burdens, who lifted their hands because there is something on their heart that they want to pray about, Father, I pray for them as best I can. Lord, I could call each person, talk to each person, share with each person, and yet, Father, you know them even better than they know themselves. So you're aware of all these things, and so we lift them up to you. Now, Father, do this. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to be engaged. And give us, Lord, a hungry heart that says, I long to know more so that I can be the best servant of God I can possibly be. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me ask you, this is a pretty good crowd here for Wednesday night. So let me ask you this. Why are you here? To hear the word. Why would you come out on a summer hot, good night. You, you know what, uh, I think about in this heat here, do you know what uh, Stonewall Jackson said? Somebody asked me, he said, if you, if you own Texas and you own hell, what would you do? He said, I'd live in hell and rent Texas. Um, it's just hot. Sometimes I think hell's just over the next hill somewhere. It's so hot here. Um, why would you come out on a hot Wednesday night in the middle of the summer for somebody to lecture you for an hour and a half? No, I'm not. <laughs> to lecture you on, on this whole thing of not just history, but ancient history. Why would you do that? Do you know if you walked in the average high school anywhere in America and you walked up to a student and you said, what do you hate in high school? One out of every two students would tell you history. And yet the interesting thing is this, we're drawn to it. We are drawn to history for some reason. If you don't believe it, just look what we watch at the movies. Titanic, and don't tell me you just went to see it because of Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, Titanic, uh, uh, Patton, blockbuster hit, The Darkest Hour, Apollo 13, um, The Showman. Is that the name of it? What's it? The Greatest Showman. That's just about P.T. Barnum the story of his life. They may sing and dance a little bit in that, but that's the story right there. There's a new movie coming out in a couple of weeks called uh, Operation Final on the life of uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was really the architect of the last, uh, of the final solution, the killing of the Jews uh, in Europe. We're drawn to history for some reason. We, we kind of uh, hunger for it. We want to know it, the interesting thing is this, is Karl Marx said, a people with no sense of history are easily persuaded. Now, Karl Marx was essentially the founder of what we know today as communism. And look at how communism has gobbled up, multiplied millions of people around this world. And he said it's because they were easily persuaded they had no sense of history. That's interesting to me when I watch a 28-year-old girl win a primary in New York City who obviously has not one bit of sense of history. If she enjoys socialism, I think we ought to help her go down to Venezuela for a month and let her see what that is. She has no sense. No, don't do that. 
Uh, she has no sense of history. She doesn't know. Um, you know, Churchill said this, that if a man is not liberal in his 20s, he has no heart. But if he's not a conservative, by the time he gets in his 40s, he has no brain. No. So anyway, I'm trying to get you all to laugh a little bit, folks. Well, let's, uh, let's do something. I want you to take your copy of God's Word because God's Word constantly points us back to history. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul talks about that in verse 11. Listen to what he says. These things happened. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Everything from Genesis to Malachi, he said all of these things happened to them, to the Jews, as an example. As an example to who? To us. And they were written for our instruction. He said the reason God put it down in a book was to instruct us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul says we need to look back to what took place in the Old Testament, and we can learn from that. It's an example for us. It's an illustration for us of what we need to know. If you take your Bibles and you go all the other the direction the other way, go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You come to Deuteronomy 4 and there Moses is telling that generation, he says, I want you to remember, remember all the way that the Lord has taken you. And he brought you up out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession. He says, you remember. In fact, he says in verse 10, remember. He says down in verse 15, you watch yourselves carefully. He gets over to verse 23 and he says, you watch yourselves again and don't forget uh, he comes down into verse 39. He says, take it into your heart. You get over to the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy. He says, you shall remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he tells them there over and over down in verse 11. He says, don't forget. In verse 18, he says, remember. In verse 19, he says, if you ever forget it, the Lord is going, well, he's going to zap you if you forget it. He's talking about all the history. Now, do you know what Deuteronomy is? Go to the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, and I'll catch up with you in a minute. Deuteronomos. Deutero is second. Nomos is law, second law. This is Moses giving the law a second time. He's teaching a whole new generation. Do you remember what God told him in the wilderness? Uh, when they wouldn't go into the land, he says, I'm going to tell you this. This is what's going to happen. Everybody that's 20 years of age and older, you're going to die in this wilderness. And I'm going to let Moses take all these 19-year-old, all these high school seniors and college freshmen. He says, I'm going to let Moses take them, and they're the ones that are going to go into the land. So now Moses is about to die, and all these college freshmen and these high school seniors now have grown up, and Moses is giving them that history. They had not seen all of the things that had happened to that generation before. So he's reminding them. He's repeating all this to them. He's given them all this history all over again. And in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, he says this, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will tell you. Now listen to this. Ask the elders. Okay. We're going to ask the elders. The elders will be able to tell you all of this uh, tonight. That's what he says right here. Ask the elders, and they'll tell you. Well, 
the Word of God from one end, the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament, is going to instruct you, you need to remember the past, remember your history. And when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the church, we need to desperately catch hold of what our history is. I uh, told a young man the other day, I got a note from out of Mid-America Seminary, and they said, would you please send us the top five books that you would recommend for every young pastor coming out, every young preacher boy coming out of seminary? So I sent them, and uh, one of them happened to be a history book, and I was given an explanation by every one of them, and I said, if you don't know your history, you can be woofed by anybody. So history is important. Why do you need to know it? You need to know it because God's Word calls us to know it, but you need to know it because you'll be woofed into anything if you don't. Now, I'm going to start very briefly, and I'm going to run you through centuries of history quickly, and I'm going to start with this video right here. Maybe you'll recognize this. This was something Daniel saw. It's history for us, and we're going to look back at this history, but for Daniel, it was prophecy. He was shown this before it ever happened. The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. The arms and the breasts of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember it fell. Babylon fell in a single night. You remember Belshazzar? The Medo-Persian Empire took over. The belly, the abdomen of uh, bronze. Who is that? That is Alexander the Great and the Macedonian Empire. Now you come to these legs of iron, harder than all the rest. These legs of iron, and we don't have time to get into the feet, but you see the legs of iron right there? There are two of them. That's the Roman Empire. And you say, well, why two? Because the Roman Empire splits at one point, and Rome uh, becomes the capital in the west, and Constantinople becomes the capital over in the east. Now, that's what Daniel saw. And two of those empires figure, figure significantly in where I want to start. If you'll go to that blank page that exists right between the prophecy of Malachi and the book of Matthew, do you know what that is right there? That black blank page right there? That's the intertestamental period right there. It's about four to 500 years of history. Two of those empires are pretty significant in this period. One of those empires is passing away. Uh, that's the Greek empire. The other empire is on the rise, and that's the Roman empire. And let me tell you why I'm telling you this so that you'll understand. I'm going to eventually show you the world into which Jesus Christ was born. Jesus wasn't born in a vacuum. He was born into a world situation that was very disturbed and was run by one of these empires that Daniel saw 530 years before it ever came to pass or before Jesus Christ was ever born. So you got your Bibles, you're there on that blank page. Uh, there is uh, in about 3.30, you've got um, Alexander the Great is dying. 33 years of age. He's dying in the city of Babylon. This is very, we know all these places right now. That's in Iraq 
All of this is taking place in Iraq. We're very familiar with that as a nation because we've been in war there for so long. Um, Alexander the Great is dying there. No more kingdoms to conquer. Uh, no more lands to conquer, and he's dying. At the age of 33, in a drunken stupor, it's kind of interesting how he dies in a drunken stupor because there are no more kingdoms uh, to conquer, and Jesus Christ will die refusing any kind of anesthetic at all so he could feel the full pain of crucifixion, and in his death, there is a kingdom that comes about that will never go away. Now look. Y'all going to have to get excited with me a little bit, okay? I brought you in here to kind of work you up so you'll be ready for Sunday mornings. Well, that's what happens. When Alexander the Great dies, he has four men, uh, four generals that were very close to him, and he divides the empire among them. He's conquered the then-known world. One is Cassander. Uh, uh, Lysimachus is uh, the other. But the two, really the one that I want to show you there is Ptolemy. We'll talk a little bit about him, but there is Seleucus or Seleucus. The Seleucids took that area of Iraq, took that area of Syria, took that area we know of Jordan, and between Ptolemy, the king of the south, and the Seleucids right there, the king of the north, lo and behold, they are going to fight each other, and what do you think becomes the battleground between the two? Anybody know what that little strip of land is right there between Ptolemy, where he reigns, and uh, where the Seleucids reign there in Syria and in what we know as Jordan today? Well, let me tell you, it's called Israel. Israel. And uh, when Seleucus passes away, of course, he turns it over to his son, and you get down and you come to this boy who is a descendant of Seleucus, and this is a guy by the name of Antiochus. Now, this guy really thought a great deal of himself because he called himself Antiochus the Great, or you know him probably best as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Appearing. Now, you've got to be really full of it to call yourself the Appearing, you know? So that's what he called himself. And uh, he ruled that whole area from Syria, Jordan, Israel, down toward Egypt. He ruled it with an iron hand, and he wanted Egypt. So he goes down and he's going to fight the Ptolemies for Egypt. And in 168, when he goes down to do that, he is defeated in battle in Egypt. And word comes out that Antiochus the Great, Antiochus the Appearing, Epiphanes, the Illumination, Antiochus has been killed. When the Jews hear that, they remove the high priest because Antiochus had appointed this high priest. Now, what these Greeks wanted to do was this. What, uh, what Alexander had wanted to do was this. He wanted the entire world to become like the Greeks, to speak the Greek language, to dress like the Greeks, to worship the Greek gods, uh, to live like the Greeks. He wanted the whole world. He wanted to do what is called, he wanted to Hellenize the world. And this guy really wanted to Hellenize the Jews because they were so resistant. They clung to their history. They knew their history, and they clung to their traditions, and they clung to their God. So when he leaves Egypt, he's mad already. He's been defeated. He can't take Egypt. And so he comes back up to Israel, and he discovers that the Jews have removed his high priest. He flies into a rage. He goes into a rage, and what he does is this. He, 
he kills, he slaughters about 40,000 Jews. He captures another 40,000 and he sells them into slavery. And then he decrees the Jews will never worship Jehovah again. You cannot meet on the Sabbath. You cannot circumcise your male children. You cannot read the Torah any longer. You cannot follow out and observe your holy days like Passover and the Festival of Trumpets and uh, all of those things. He says you can't do that. Now, this is what happens inside of the land of Israel. You've got the nation, you've got the population that really divides up into two parts. They're part of the population that says, well, you know, we want to get along with the government and we want to survive and we want to do business and we want things, so we might as well go along with it. And uh, let's just kind of go along with it. And you've got another group over here. And the other group says, absolutely not. We will not do that. We will sneak and worship our God. We will sneak and go out and sacrifice. We will sneak and go out on the Sabbath and find somewhere to worship. We will sneak and circumcise our children. We will do all of these things, and we're going to hold to the worship of the one true God. Well, you can see where this is leading. And it's not going to be good. What's going to happen is this. It's going to lead up to a civil war. This guy goes into the temple itself. He goes into the temple. He erects an altar to Jupiter, the Greek god, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the Jewish temple. Now, ooh is right. <laughs> he then takes the blood of that pig and he splatters it all over the walls and the floor of the temple. He desecrates it. That just really seals the deal right there. Well, they go in, and there is a priest there by the name of Mattathias. Mattathias was an old man. He had five sons, but he was an acting priest at the time. And they come in to Mattathias, and the Greeks say, you will offer a sacrifice on this altar we've built to Jupiter. And Mattathias says, that's what you think. Not going to happen. They said, oh, yes, it is. He says, oh, no, it's not. I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to let you do it. There's a young, there's always a young guy there somewhere who's willing to compromise. And a young guy steps forward, one of the young priests, and he says this, well, I'll do it. I'll do it. Let's just get along. Let's just go along. I don't want anything to happen to you, Mattathias. I, I think we just want to do this, and it's okay. So give me the sacrifice, and I'll do it. And as the, as the young man takes the sacrifice to offer it on that altar to Jupiter, Mattathias pulls out his sacrificial knife, and he kills that young priest. It's at that time, it is just a whole breakdown, and there is a brawl in the temple. And those Jews kill those Greeks that are there. Mattathias and his five boys take off and they fled to the wilderness. They get out in the wilderness and all of a sudden people start flocking to them. And they're beginning to raise an army. Now let me just give you a little bit of technical information here. Mattathias is going to be known as the family of the Maccabees. Have you ever heard 1st and 2nd Maccabees? That's where you get that from. They also have a family name known as Hasmon. 
Because what's going to come out of Mattathias is the Hasmonean dynasty. They will rule for a hundred years. In between Greece ruling and, and the Seleucids and uh, before Rome shows up, now hang on because Rome's about to show up, before Rome gets there, the Jews are going to have almost a hundred years where they rule themselves and they're not occupied or ruled by anybody else. Those Maccabees, you ever heard of Judas the Maccabean, uh, Judas the Hammer? They hammer the daylights out of the Seleucids. Those Jews come out and they fight and they take their country back. And they live that way free for a hundred years until they come down to two Maccabean brothers. Two brothers, Heracanus and Aristobulus. Two brothers who didn't like each other. Two brothers who were very upset with one another. Two brothers, each one wanted to rule as the high priest and they started a civil war. They started a civil war in Israel, and there was a guy who was nearby by the name of Pompey. Pompey, you know where you get the name Pompous from, the word Pompous from? From Pompey. It literally comes from him. He called himself Pompey the Great. He was a great Roman general. He had several Roman legions. And so Heracanus slips out of Jerusalem gets over to the camp of Pompey, and he says to Pompey, I want you to come and help me defeat my brother, and I will become the high priest, and we will certainly, we'll pay you for all of this, Pompey, if you'll just bring these Roman legions here and help us do it. Well, unknown to Heracanus, Aristobulus was going to do the same thing. He slips out of the city goes to Pompey and says to Pompey, I want you to come and I want you to help me defeat my brother and we'll see to it that you are paid. Now, let me just stop and give you another little insight here. The followers of Heracanus were very Jewish, very serious about their Judaism. They were great students of the Torah. They were called Pharisees. Mm hmm. Now watch. Aristobulus was a little to the left, a little to the liberal side, a little to the political intrigue, and his followers were called. Sat that look. A room full of historians here tonight. Mm hmm. Keep that in mind. That figures significantly here in just a little bit. Well, I'm going to show you a picture of Pompey, the Roman general. There he is. <laughs> because Pompey says to him, I got a deal for you. You can't refuse. And Pompey comes in. Here's Pompey. Here's a picture of Pompey right there. And he comes in, he's like the mafia. When they come in, they do not leave. And they're not just going to take what you're willing to give them, they're going to take over. And so Pompey sides with Heracanus because Heracanus was a much more affable guy, a much more fun guy to be with than Aristobulus. And so Pompey comes in with Heracanus, 
And uh, Aristobulus now and the other Sadducees lock down the city and especially the area around the temple. And it takes them three months to break through. But breakthrough they do, no doubt, this guy is going to come in there. He gets in there, and do you know what he does? He walks into the temple. Now, you're having stuff happen here that just doesn't happen. This guy walks into the temple, and he walks into the temple there, and you can read about uh, what Pompey saw. Pompey describes this. There is a, I started to bring the quote. He writes this, what he went into the temple. Pompey said, I have been in all these places, conquered all these areas and all these cities, and he says, when I walked into the temple, I never saw anything in the world like I saw in there. He saw gold everywhere. There were the golden vessels. There was the golden menorah. There, was, uh, there were barrels of gold that held that first cold press of olive oil that was used uh, only by the priests there for the menorah. There was the golden incense altar. There was the golden table, the showbread table. There were the silver trumpets. All of that there, he walks in, he sees all of that, And to Pompey's credit, he turns around and he walks out. He doesn't touch it. He doesn't bother it. He doesn't take one thing. He goes out of the temple and he looks at Hyrcanus and he says, you have the priests now cleanse this place so that you Jews can go back to worship. Now you say, why would a Roman general do that? Because a great, big, sovereign God intervened. Well, Pompey's been gone from Rome. Let me just stop for a moment. Do y'all need to catch your breath? Because we've gone through about 300 years of history here. Really, a little bit more than that. Well, Pompey's been gone from Rome so long uh, that uh, the, the, the citizens of Rome have really forgotten about Pompey. And uh, there's another guy that is doing some stuff that everybody in Rome is kind of fascinated by, and his name happens to be Julius Caesar, who in the year 49 has defeated all of these Celts and these Germans, and uh, he is coming back over Cisalpine into the area of Italy, into uh, the region of Rome, and he's coming now with what he makes up an entire legion of these Celts and Germans that become the greatest fighting force Rome has ever had. He has 600 of these massive massive German warriors that are his personal bodyguard. And he gets to a river called the Rubicon. And to cross that without disbanding his legions is an act of war on Rome, and he crosses the Rubicon. What's the famous statement from that? Do you remember? The die is cast. Can't be changed. He crosses the Rubicon. There he goes with his German soldiers, and he's going to take the Roman Republic, and he's going to make it an empire, and he's going to be the first emperor. But Pompey is back, and Pompey is not going to let him do that. 
Now all the Roman senators come to Pompey and say, you must raise an army. They raise an army. And uh, Julius Caesar takes his army because he's just raising these soldiers, but he's got these crack forces. He's got these battle-hardened soldiers, only about 22,000. Pompey comes with about 50,000 soldiers. And they fight what is known in ancient history as the Battle of Pharsalus in the middle of Greece. And there at the Battle of Pharsalus, somebody slips the battle plans of Pompey to Caesar. And Caesar puts his 10th. Now, the 10th Roman legion would be like SEAL Team 6. That's what they're like. In my study at home, well, I have no study at home. Um, I've got a torn up house that, uh, you know, but I will eventually get to, I have got a sign that is 2,000 years old that came from the 10th Roman Legion. It is the, it says basically 10th Roman Legion. It comes off of their camp when they had circled the city of Jerusalem uh, in 70 AD. Uh, I've, I've got a copy of that. I had an old, old, old antique dealer in Jerusalem um, that I used to go and slip in and see when I could put Debbie somewhere else and she didn't know what I was doing. I'd slip in there and he sold me this thing. Uh, it is a museum quality piece. It's unreal. But the 10th Roman Legion was the crack legion of Caesar. Well, Julius Caesar gathers up his forces. He puts the 10th Roman Legion there, I think, on his right. He hides 5,000 troops behind his cavalry. And when Pompey attacks in the middle, uh, those cavalry just fade out and away, and in come these crack troops, and they defeat the 50,000 troops of Pompey there at the Battle of Pharsalus. Pompey flees, he leaves, he goes down to Egypt, and there in Egypt, uh, the Ptolemies catch him and cut his head off. And that brings me now to Julius Caesar going down to Egypt to see Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> he follows down there. He goes down there. He wants to know where is Ptolemy. And they bring Ptolemy's head to him in a basket. Well, in Egypt at that time, there's a civil war going on. Now, hang on, folks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you up here. I'm giving you a lot of foundation right now, but, but just hang with me. There's a civil war going on in Egypt. Everybody's fighting at this time. And um, the, the civil war is between Cleopatra and her brother because she wants to rule and he wants to rule. And here comes Julius Caesar into the midst of this, and uh, they think that he is there to side with Cleopatra. So the Egyptian troops run him into this palace in Alexandria, and they surround the palace there, and he's shut up in this palace, and in walks some of these Egyptian soldiers carrying a rug, and as they carry the rug, they put it on the floor, and they roll it out, and out in the middle of that rug rose Cleopatra. And they're stuck now in this palace. And nobody will come. The Romans won't come. They make up excuses as to why they can't get there because they really don't want Julius Caesar to be the emperor of Rome. 
You can't get anybody else because Rome has defeated everybody else. But there's one person who is sympathetic and decides that he is going to help Julius Caesar. And it happens to be the guy who is the high priest in Jerusalem. And he raises an army. And he goes down to save Julius Caesar from the Egyptians. And he does it. Have you ever just wondered, have you ever thought when you've read the New Testament and you thought about Roman history, why did the Romans allow the Jews freedom to worship God? They were free to do it. Do you remember they would not enter in the temple? They would not. There were so many things that the Romans would not do to the Jews, but gave them free latitude in a lot of ways that they never gave anyone else. It was because Julius Caesar said, I will never forget what the Jews did for me. And he put down in the law of the Romans that the Jews were to have freedom to worship their God. And so he's the last Roman to ever give a hoot for the Jews. That's going to change when Augustus becomes Caesar. And he's going to follow hard on the heels of that. Well, that is the world into which now Jesus Christ is born. I've just given you a background, uh, all of that into the world into which Christ was born. You've got a world that is at continuous conflict, continuous war. You've got a world that is divided in every way it could possibly be divided. And now you've got Jesus born into this world. And who's now ruling? Augustus. Caesar's gone. You've got a new emperor who really doesn't care for the Jews. And now they've put a guy in the position there in Jerusalem who claims to be a Jew and he's not. His name is Herod. Herod the Great. There he is. That's the, that's the first photograph ever taken in history. It's all the way back to Herod. There's Herod right there. Herod is a piece of work. He's a maniacal genius is what he was. He was an unbelievable genius at engineering. He built, of course, the temple of Herod there in Jerusalem. He built this place. That is a place called the Herodian. Do you know that's a man-made mountain right there? There is his palace or the remains of his palace on top of the Herodian. Now, just hold it right there for a minute. This is about 12 miles out from Jerusalem. Bethlehem, just standing right there, Bethlehem is over here in this direction. Um, what you're seeing around here is the area where Amos would have taken his sheep and would have fed his sheep. Herod wanted to build a palace, but he wanted to build it on top of a mountain. And he wanted to build it on top of the mountain for two reasons. Number one, he said, I want to see Jerusalem from here. So they built that mountain and built that mountain and built that mountain. They came to him and they said, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is we've built your mountain. The bad news is you can't see Jerusalem from it. He says, oh yeah, we can. You go back and you keep building. 
So you can stand on the remains of this, and I've been there on a couple of occasions, and from there, you can see Jerusalem on a clear day. On a clear day, you can see forever. But from there, you can, on a clear day, see the city of Jerusalem. The other reason he built that, let me tell you, he built Caesarea Maritima, this incredible harbor. Nobody has yet to figure out how they sank the bases of that harbor there on the Mediterranean. He built this fabulous city there. I could take an hour and talk to you about Caesarea uh, Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. He built uh, a palace down in Jericho. He built a palace on top of Masada. Have you ever heard of Masada? I don't have a picture of it. Do you know why he built these palaces? Because his wife, Mary Omni, was friends with a woman by the name of Cleopatra. Same one. And after Julius Caesar died off, Richard Burton went down there to Egypt. He met up with Cleopatra, and they had this flaming relationship. And Herod and Richard Burton, uh, Herod and um, Mark Anthony were close friends, but Mary Omni, the wife of Herod, and Cleopatra were close friends. And she talked to Cleopatra about how Herod was treating her. And Cleopatra talked to Mark Anthony and said, you just need to kill him. And Herod was terrified, terrified that Mark Anthony was going to listen to Cleopatra and kill him. So he built fortress after fortress after fortress where he could run to and could get up and could withstand an attack by Mark Anthony. Boy, boy, boy. Anyway, Mary Omni was a beautiful woman. They were, it was said that she was the most beautiful woman in the world next to Cleopatra at the time. He kills her. He puts her to death because she's telling all this stuff. He kills several of his sons, puts them to death. The saying was in that day and time, it is better to be Herod's pig than to be a member of Herod's family. Well, Herod was an Idumean. He was not a Jew. His father uh, was um, an Edomite. His mother was a Nabataean princess from Petra. You've heard of Petra. That's where the Nabataeans were. And he married Mary Omni, so that would legitimize, he thought, and he could take her lineage and he could say, I am a Jew, thinking that that would make, it, make him palatable to the Jews. But of course, it did not. Now, that's, that's Herod. If you want a great source, if you want to read something about Herod and get a real good indication of uh, who Herod is and what Herod was like, go get Bill O'Reilly's book on killing Jesus. It's not a devotional book. He didn't mean for it to be a theology book. It is a good history book, and you read the opening pages, and it talks to you. It gives you vividly a description of Herod. Herod died. Uh, they think he basically killed himself. He was so eaten up with venereal diseases uh, that um, open sores uh, just had opened up in his body. And he took his life, most likely, down in Jericho. They brought him back to this palace. Uh, Netzer, uh, Ehud Netzer, this guy right here from the university of uh, 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 there in Jerusalem, the Hebrew university in Jerusalem, for 40 years looked. 
The tomb of Herod had been lost for 2,000 years. In 2007, this guy, this archaeologist, found it right there uh, in the Herodian, and he found Herod's tomb, what he had spent his life looking for, and a few days after that, he fell in that area where he found Herod's tomb, injured himself, and died three days later. Well, that's the world into which Jesus was born. That's the world into which the church is birthed. Uh, that's the world into which the Savior came, a world just full of uh, deception and intrigue and war and death. Everything that surrounds Herod is nothing but death. He slaughters the innocents. You know the story of putting the innocents to death, trying to get at the Savior, trying to get at the Christ, trying to get at Christ because he believed that there was a rival that had been born. Well, that's the world into which Jesus Christ was born. Uh, that gives you a little bit of an understanding of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what I want to do is now get you to the church because it's uh, into this world that the church is birthed. The first eight chapters of Acts show you the birth and the growth of the church. Up until the stoning of Stephen, the church just stays right there in Jerusalem. Stephen, one of the deacons, you remember, is put to death, gives that tremendous testimony, and then they kill him, and the church, once they, once they martyr Stephen, the church, it is nothing like killing a church deacon that'll scatter the church. And the church just scatters. And when it scatters, a huge group leave and go up to a place called Antioch, Antioch of Syria. And there in Antioch, people are coming to Jesus Christ. I wish I had an additional 30 minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time because I'd love to tell you, do you know the Romans built the largest pagan temples of the ancient world right over opposite Antioch? Nero was doing this. A god to Bacchus, who was the god of wine, the god uh, Aphrodite, who was the goddess of sex, and uh, to Jupiter, the god of power, or Zeus, as they called him, the god of power. And they built it there. Do you know why they built it there? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an insight here. I'll come back and preach this sometime. They, they, they built that the largest temples Rome ever built, they built next to Antioch, because there were so many people in the empire coming to Christ, they wanted to introduce all of these great temples to these pagan gods. Well, lo and behold, guess what's happening at Antioch? Not only are Jews getting saved, you got Gentiles getting saved. You got Gentiles getting saved. That hadn't happened before. And they're coming into the church, and oh, Lord have mercy. Are we going to let Gentiles into our church? Are we going to allow them to get into the kingdom? Are they going to be in heaven with us? Are we going to let them get saved and let them come into the church? So all of the council down there in Jerusalem, the disciples there in Jerusalem, pick a guy by the name of Barnabas and say, we want you to go up there to Antioch. Go up there and find out what's going on. Well, Barnabas goes up there to Antioch, and he walks into a full-blown revival. I mean, people are getting saved left and right. They're coming out of pagan backgrounds. They're coming to Jesus, and they don't know what to do. They have not a clue as to what to do. 
And so he says, we've got to disciple these, these people. And he, he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? He says, I, I remember that guy Saul that came down here to try to talk to these disciples, and they didn't want anything to do with him. He goes to Tarsus. He gets Saul. He brings Saul back to Antioch. And for one year, Barnabas and Saul disciple everybody coming to Christ in the city of Antioch. And at the end of that year, God says through the Holy Spirit, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul. And I want them to go to do a mission that I've called them to do. So the church sends Barnabas and Saul, and then you know it becomes Paul and Barnabas, the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey. Paul goes his way, gets Timothy. Barnabas goes his way and takes John Mark. And uh, Paul gets on out there into what we know today as Turkey, and he sees this Macedonian soldier calling him to come over, and he moves from Asia over into Europe when he gets to Philippi. Now, let me tell you something. Had he gone the other direction, it would be China sending missionaries to us instead of us sending missionaries to China. This changes the world, folks. This changes everything in the rest of history. To this very moment, it changes. He moves to the west, and the gospel now is going to move from the west, from Philippi, and it will go eventually to Rome. Paul says, I want to come to Rome. I want to come to you there. You remember he writes that at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 15, and he says, I want to come to you, and he says, I want to go on to Spain. Paul dies in 67, 68. So does Peter. They're both executed by Nero. Nero in 69 is told, you either take your life or we're going to take it. And so he takes his own life. And uh, that's the end of that madman there, uh, Nero. But that's 67, 68, 69. By the year 300, the gospel is firmly in place in Spain. It has already reached the shores of England. And the question is this, how in the world inside of about 225, 230 years did the gospel explode and cover that much territory? They didn't have automobiles or bicycles or cell phones or internet or email or television or anything like that. It wasn't necessarily because there were so many missionaries like Paul and Barnabas. It wasn't because there were so many preachers. It was because the average people heard the gospel, trusted Christ, and told people around them of what God had done in their lives. Now, the funny thing is this. 2,000 years later, that's the same thing we're supposed to be doing right now is to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. To China, yes. To Asia, yes. To Eastern Europe, yes. But tonight, go next door. Talk to somebody down the street. And you say, well, how is it that they did that? Let me give you five quick things and I'll try to do it in three minutes, okay? Five quick things let me give you. What was it? Five reasons. Number one, what I've just told you, the Christian witness. 
I've never seen anybody come out of a lecture on philosophy crying, saying Aristotelian philosophy has changed my life. I've got to go tell everybody I know. I've just never seen that happen. I've never seen anybody come out of a theater and say that movie with Leonardo in it has changed my life for eternity. I've just got to go share that. But I want to tell you what, I've seen people walk the aisles of a church like this, tears in their eyes, and go out, and you can see the difference for the rest of their lives that Jesus has transformed them. The Christian witness, sharing Jesus Christ. That's, uh, that's the other thing, the transforming effect of the gospel. You remember Constantine in 325 calls the Council of Nicaea together. He outlaws persecution against the church. Christianity becomes the state religion. But 100 years after Constantine, there's a guy by the name of Julian who becomes emperor, and he goes down in history as Julian the Apostate. He does everything he can to stomp out Christianity. He does everything he can. The Roman Empire is falling apart, and he blames it on the Christians. And you know what he calls Christians? He calls Christians atheists. He calls them atheists because they will not come and say, Kaisar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. So he says, you're an atheist, you won't worship. Well, they do worship, they're just not going to worship Caesar. But I want you to listen to what Julian the Apostate says. Atheism, or Christianity, has been specifically advanced through the loving treatment rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's scandalous that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar that the godless Galileans care not for their own poor, but they care for ours as well. What Julian was saying was this, I'm trying to stomp out Christianity as hard as I can, but I declare they live better lives than we live. The transformation of life. Number three, anybody can come to Jesus. You know, in the Roman world, one-third of the population were slaves. That is, one out of every three people were owned by somebody. Uh, they were, they were, you could do anything you wanted to to a slave, you, you, even down to take his life. It didn't matter. If you were a male of a certain, um, well, if you were a male in that society, your wife and your children were chattel. You could do anything you wanted to to them. You could take their life. You were not going to be prosecuted by law. People were dirt poor. People were slaves. You had women who were treated that way. You had children that were treated that way. You had people that had no education whatsoever. And what did the church say? God so loved the world that whosoever will may come. Anybody could come to Jesus Christ. It didn't matter your color. It didn't matter your background. It didn't matter your language. It didn't matter your station on the social scale in life. Anybody and everyone could come to Jesus Christ. Number four, Christianity offered questions uh, to a world that was crumbling around everybody. The world was coming apart. And, and no religion had an answer for the deep things of life. The Greeks had believed, and the Romans picked up on it, and they believed all of their gods were just superhumans. All of their gods got angry, got mad, lusted, had illicit relationships, were greedy, stole, played tricks, were deceptive, lied. That's who their gods were. And then you have this God who comes along, who is all truth, who speaks truth, who is love, who uh, cares for people, who is compassionate and merciful and tender, 
and uh, full of grace. And there, there, you, there you go. There you go. The world hadn't seen anything like that. The world didn't have an answer for all of that. Hey, years ago, I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I was, I'd walked out on, a, out on the street. We'd been at the House of Pancakes eating, and I walked out, and there was a guy out there selling the Gita, which happens to be just Hinduism is basically what it is. And so I got uh, next to him, and I said, buddy, man, I just, do you think that thing has anything that can help me? And, oh, yeah, absolutely, just buy it and read it, just buy it and read it. And I said, well, do you think it could help me? I've just got real struggles. He said, yeah, just buy it and read it. I said, but I've got real struggles. Will, will it help my struggles? I said, I struggle with, the, with, the, with, with guilt about sin in my life. Yeah, here, just buy the book. Just read it. Just buy the book and read it. I said, have you experienced, did it help you? Did you struggle over guilt and sin in your life? Here, just buy the book. And this time he was walking away from me. And I catch him in the middle of the street in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I say to him, there's a far better book. And beyond the book, there's a Savior who can deal with your sin and who can deal with your guilt. And his name is Jesus. He was in a flat run at that point. The <laughs> world doesn't have anything like that. Why in the world do we not tell people this? Islam doesn't have anything like that. Hinduism doesn't have anything like that. Shirley MacLaine doesn't have anything. Oprah doesn't have anything like that. Dr. Phil doesn't have anything like that. Let me tell you something. We've got a Savior. And that Savior is a Savior. Do I have one more? I'm three minutes past my time. It's this. This, this. Christians die well. Christians die well. Let me... Let me kind of end up with this. Polycarp was born somewhere around 74, 70, 74. This guy right here lived to 155. He is one of the chief early fathers. Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, those three. This guy was discipled by the apostle John. Now you say, how do you know that? Because I read. Um, uh, we have testaments that speak of this. Ignatius, uh, another Ignatius comes along and he writes about Polycarp. And he talks about Polycarp being a disciple. As a young man, was a disciple of the age John. He was born in 70. If he was 20 years of age, um, 90, John lived to be 100. He probably knew John for a number of years before John died. He became a preacher, was a preacher. He preached that Jesus Christ was God who had come to save us. Now, next week, I'm going to introduce you to the Da Vinci Code. Because in the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown says, nobody believed that Jesus Christ was divine until 325, where you can back all the way back up about 175 years ahead of that Polycarp believed he was God and was preaching it because Scripture taught it. They got him when he was about 86 years of age. They brought him before the emperor, and they told him, Polycarp, you have got to, you have got to at least say Caesar is Lord. 
And Polycarp said, all these years he's never wronged me. I would not blaspheme my Lord now. And so the emperor spoke and he said, listen, I don't want to do this, but he says, I'm going to burn you. And Polycarp said to him, your fire will burn but for a moment, but there's a fire burning for you that will last for eternity. He was one bad 86-year-old, wasn't he? (laughs) And they took him and they burned him and he died well. He died well. He died confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 